John chapter 1 this morning. I want to read verses 29 to 34 in what is commonly called the gospel according to John. Now, it is called that because it is not simply John thought this up. It's the gospel according to John as he was given it by the power of the Holy Spirit to record the words and the actions of Jesus Christ. And after his 18-verse introduction where he gives us the most theological, wonderful display of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and human, that he's the creator of all things and yet the author of our faith, We are then in verses 19 to 28 introduced to the fact that here was John the Baptist's testimony. Here's how that theology affected a person. Now in our passage, verses 29 to 34, we see how John the Baptist witnessed for Jesus. Hence why my title this morning is Witnessing 101. Witnessing 101, and the catchphrase is always keep it about Jesus. Always keep it about Jesus. And you'll see that in this passage. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, the apostle would say this, the next day. So in verses 19 to 28, you have a day, that's first day of a week of days that you're going to get from 119 to 211. The next day, John, he saw Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And notice, in my Bible, it has an exclamation point afterwards. And so me and Steve have a competition about this. I love the exclamation point. Steve says, I love it too much. My personality is, I don't want to just tell you things. I want to tell you them enthusiastically. And so here, I believe I have grammatical evidence that John the Baptist went, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, this is he of whom I said. And he's referring back to the day before. After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And again, John bore witness He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now John gets very personal. He says, I have seen and have borne witness This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is the Son of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want you to think for a minute, because I'm going to make a massive assumption that many of you in this room, maybe even all of you would claim, Steve, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. What I wish I would have the time to is to interact with you to ask you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by being a Christian? But let's make the assumption that everybody in here is. Then let me put it to you that, or remind you that we're into the year, as we would say in, in Old English, the year of our Lord, 2017. It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus lived and died and rose again. Fathom that. 20 centuries plus. We also know that he ascended to heaven, and we know that that had an effect on his disciples. Dr. Luke, who wrote this two-part documentary, Luke and Acts, tells us in Acts chapter 1 some amazing words when he says this. So when they had come together, that's the disciples, Jesus has now risen from the dead. He has walked the planet now for 40 days. And they come to him and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they still saw the world in political pressures. They still wanted to know if Jesus would now overthrow Rome, free Israel, and set up the kingdom. And I, know, I love what Jesus says. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses. Now notice the similarities of these words with what we read in John 1, 29-34. You will receive power. You will receive the Holy Spirit when He comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And then He tells them how that's going to ripple out. He says, in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. I love what comes next. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody disappeared from me in my sight, I would gaze. I think everybody in the room would. None of you would go, well, that was normal. Now let's go to Dominion. You'd stand there and gaze. And that's what these guys do. And while they're gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now here's a promise. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Can I get a witness? Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Y'all look like you've been hit in the face with a dead rabbit or something, all right? Maybe you've shoveled too much. But listen, as Christians, do you and I believe that if Jesus went, he's coming back? All right. I still want to say liar, liar, pants on fire. I really do. Because it's easy for me to whip you up into a frenzy, get a few amens and say, oh yeah, we believe that. But I don't know about you, but since this interaction, for over 2,000 years, we've seen the explosion of the gospel and the church. But let's be honest. I think you have all, when your first reaction is a lot more honest to what maybe we struggle with. The fact that we know this stuff with our head, but maybe we feel a little bit like what Peter warned us that we might be tempted to feel like, and that people would come along and kind of make fun of us about. You see, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Peter says this, Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, here it is, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Have you not felt this? Be honest. Exactly. Have you not heard people say these things? I have. I've had people say to me, Steve, man, listen, I don't understand how someone that appears to be as intelligent as you play yourself off to be can be so gullible and pliable that you would believe this. Because, dude... It hasn't happened. People have been clinging to this now for over 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened. So get over it and start living life. And have you faced that kind of conversation? Of course you have. If you watch the news, it's insinuated every day. It's what you deal with. So here's the question. How can a believer, under these types of tensions... When I know that Jesus lived, and I know that He died, and I know that He rose again, and I know He was seen of hundreds of witnesses, and I know He ascended from this earth into heaven, and I have a promise from angels to humans that He's coming back in the way He left. I know that, and yet I live in a world that quite honestly seems hell-bent on denying Him and convincing you and I that He lied to us. So how are, you, how are you and I to bear witness to Jesus Christ in these tensions? How are we to do it? And it's an important question. Because if every one of us in this room claims to be a Christian, then every one of us is called upon to be a witness. Absolutely. But also, because of the expansion of the gospel in our time, and we are seeing it, it depends in no small measure upon whether or not we will do it, and if we will do it, how well will we do it? You see, when I was growing up, out in Carbonear, just as you're going down the hill, as you come through Harbor Grace and you go down the hill into Carbonear, 
If you look to your left, there's a sign that says Earl's Riding Stables. All right, some of you are smiling like some of you have seen that. All right, it was a tradition of my life that I would go to summer camp and we would go to the Earl riding horses things and we would ride horses and I never got over my fear of them, ever. And every time we went, something wild would happen. Someone got bucked off. Somebody got kicked. Somebody's horse ran off into the woods. The worst one yet was about 20 or 30 of us out there and a moose came out on the trail, spooked all the horses, and 20 horses went in 20 different directions. And I just remember hanging on for dear life as mine just galloped away and all I could do was go, ah, I couldn't say stop. I couldn't say go. I forgot everything they told me. It's just horses in all directions. And I remember every year I would go as I would approach these horses and had visions of being bucked and kicked, that the rider would say to me, you know, horses can smell fear. (laughs) Well, I used to think that I must reek of it, all right? But I actually think that humans can smell a fraud. I think when we live in this tension of saying, we believe that Jesus is real, that he lived, died, rose again, and he's coming back. People look at us and then they go, but how come you say that, but your life doesn't seem to bear it out? You don't live like that's reality. I think humans see that. And so that's why I say, what is witnessing 101? You see, last week we saw step one in bearing witness for Jesus, which was to reflect Christ. Make your life. Remember, John the Baptist didn't make his testimony about him. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And who is he a voice to? To Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I I learn I'm a simple man. And I don't know if you've heard this expression. The world has this expression, and it's called the kiss method. method. Have you heard of the kiss method? There it is. Bruce knows it. Bruce and I, I think, are tarred with the same brush. We need those simple things, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Now, I'm not insinuating that you're stupid. I'm just saying the great thing is if you keep it simple, even if you are, you can get it, okay? So here it is. The passage before us, verses 29 to 34, is that second of seven days. Remember, Genesis starts with the seven days of creation. John begins his gospel with this beautiful theology in 1 to 18. And then from chapter 119 to chapter 2, 11, he gives us a week of the gospel. He displays the gospel. And so this is day number two. This is who Jesus is. This is our response to him that tells us about the disciples and how they would be tasked with propagating Jesus' testimony. And in chapter 2, we're going to see the first sign to confirm that everything that was said in chapter 1 is true and trustworthy. But this passage, more than any of the others, gives us witnessing 101. It's like freshman witnessing if you went to college. It's the blueprint of how to present Jesus. It's how we should think about Him and ourselves. And by the time I'm done here today, my prayer and my aim and my hope, quite honestly, my desperate plea, is that each and every one of you will think deeply, often, and apply this passage to your life today. But I also pray that this part of God's word, John chapter 1, 29 to 34, will fill you with hope. It'll call you to Jesus. I pray that it'll instruct you with why to believe and how to share Jesus with others in your lives. And so we start with this. Number one, and here's the great one, witnessing 101. Well, for starters, you need to know who Jesus is. If you're going to be a witness for him, you need to know who Jesus is. Now, if you remember again in verses 19 to 28, the day before, right, this religious group of people were sent from Jerusalem as emissaries. The passage tells us they were made up of scribes and Levites. These are lawyers of the law. The passage tells us they were sent by the Pharisees. 
Now, no doubt this group represented what was called the Sanhedrin, which back in Jerusalem at the temple was the ruling authority of Judaism in regards to religious matters. In fact, they might have even been sent by the high priest himself. And they were to quiz John, John the Baptist, who would become both famous and infamous. And they were supposed to go to him and say, who are you? Who are you? And they asked him, are you the Messiah? And John confesses, I'm not... I'm not the Messiah. And then they ask him if he is Elijah. And he says, no, no, I'm not Elijah. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? And he says, no, I am not the prophet. I'm neither the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. No, he says, I am simply a voice. I just testify. I just tell people, anybody, I don't care who you are. I don't care if we've known each other for a day or a moment or all of our lives. I'm just here to tell people about Jesus. And we learned and saw and read that that was John's testimony. I am the one who makes straight the way of the Lord. He says, my existence is to prep people, to warn them and to call them, to give them hope and yet make them uncomfortable. That is the weird juxtaposition of being a Christian. You offer people hope. But for them to want hope, they got to know how dire the situation is. And you know this if you're in the medical field. If you've ever been diagnosed with cancer, or been told you have heart disease, or been told you have a chronic or terminal illness, you have been faced with a doctor who sits you down and tells you the dire truth, and then a good doctor gives you hope. A doctor doesn't just give you all of the badness of the situation. A good doctor with a good bedside manner also offers you hope and comfort. See, that's why Jesus used medical terms so often. Remember when he said to the Pharisees, I didn't come to you that were healed. I came to those who were sick. I came to those who know that they've got issues and they've got problems. And so John the Baptist says, my testimony is simply to yell out Jesus. You see, that is real witnessing. Steve Lawson who's down in California, puts it like this. Only the gospel that has come from God is the gospel that leads to God. Only the gospel that comes from God is the gospel that leads to God. And so look at our passage in John 1, 29. This is why John simply begins by saying, Behold the Lamb of God. You want witnessing 101? There it is. Behold the Lamb of God. John starts by giving his testimony. He goes right to the gospel. You wanted to know about me, he says, but let me tell you about who Jesus is. Listen, knowing about me gets you nowhere, but knowing about Jesus gets you everywhere. So he says, behold the Lamb of God. And this is quite a unique phrase in the New Testament. Now forgive me, because I get excited about this. I've been around Christianity since I was five years old. I grew up in a Christian school, went to Sunday school and youth group, did all the Awana stuff. I could win the sword drills and all. But when God, through His Holy Spirit, shows me things in Scripture and I see the way the Bible is woven together so perfectly, I got to tell you, it lights my fire. All right? So I know we're in a little room. I may get a little bit excited about this. All right? So buckle up. Here we go. Let's go for a takeoff. The expression, the Lamb of God, is unique to John the Apostle in his writings. In fact, he uses it more than anybody. In Revelation, it is filled with the expression, the Lamb of God. It's there almost 30 times. In the book of Revelation alone, behold the Lamb of God. And if you think all the ways that Jesus is described in verses 1 to 18, you'll be shocked to look and see how many times Jesus is given names in verses 19 onward. You see, these religious leaders came to John the Baptist and said, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And the next day, John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then John starts to unpack it. Because in verse 38 and 49, he's called rabbi. In verse 41, he's called Messiah. In verses 34 and 49, he's called the Son of God. In verse 49, he's called the King of Israel. In verse 51, he's the Son of Man. And him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, in verse 45. This is not John guessing. He's not guessing. This was the revelation from God. Here is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, friends, don't miss this. Because when you've encountered people 
Today, when you go out and you encounter people, this week when you have conversations with people, think about how God has worked in your life. And was it not by seeing what God had done in somebody else's life? Were you not influenced by someone who had been influenced by God? Someone either that at first made you angry, or at first made you curious, or at first made you confused. And then you just saw how they dealt with life and you started having conversations. Someone who came alongside you and loved you or prayed for you or had conversations with you or simply lived a life that said, wait a second, I don't know if I like them, I don't even know if I get them, but man, they've got something I don't have. This is the world around us. Witnessing 101 is first displaying Jesus in your life and then as people react to that, you tell them who Jesus is and what he has done. Here's the tragedy of the modern day church. Most people don't see Jesus in our lives. We talk a good game, but we're never in the game. Have you ever been around people like that? I love the guys that tell me when we get, yeah, I, I jump out of a plane. Oh yeah, I'm a real daredevil. Really? I, I remember in PEI, it came to the airport where you could do that. You could go jump out of a plane. And this came up as a comp- topic of conversation amongst a group of friends of mine. And everybody in the circle, I, I jump out of, oh yeah, I'm not afraid to do that. I do that. Do it in a heartbeat. And so then I found out it was only 100 bucks. So I called all these buddies up of mine and said, listen, it's 100 bucks. I won't tell my wife and we'll all go do it. Nobody took me up on my offer. Nobody. I sat around at a restaurant where I'd do that. I'm not afraid of that as long as I know that the parachute's okay. Everybody, all of a sudden, oh, no, I'm working. No, no, oh, my wife would never let me do that. No, no, listen, boy, you know, do you get to pack your own parachute? I don't know. Well, if I don't know that, I'm not going with you, Steve. And I'll be honest, I was like, bunch of sooks. All talk and no game. I experienced, as I've told you this, Jeff, who has got a sick sense of humor and a sick desire to just walk places for long periods of time. He loves to hike. You're not right in the head if you like to do that. You know that, right? And, and he, wants, he wants to drag me along for it. And I have no desire. I want to, <laughs> nor does his wife apparently. But he, he did ask me to go um, zip line him with him. And I was, he, he's asked me, Steve, would you go zip? Oh, yeah, I'll go zip lining. <laughs> and then he said, Well, I got tickets, let's go. Oh. <laughs> and then we went. And I learned firsthand how faith must grow. <laughs> As I went through that experience, and remember, I've told you the first five lines I went through, I had the death grip on those handles. I would not let, I mean, white knuckles, my hands were sore for days after I did that zip lining. Because my thought was, if this harness thingy breaks, I will dangle here till somebody rescues me. And it wasn't until I got about halfway through and going through all the different ones that I came to have faith that the harness could be trusted and I could let my grip go and I could enjoy the ride. And wouldn't you know it, when I finally got to the 10th run, I was like, yeah, and then it was over. But this is what we do. We, we, we talk a good game, but John the Baptist does exactly the opposite. He says, look, it's not about me. It's about Christ. And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God. John says, notice this word, this passage, this phrase. John doesn't say, Jesus is a Lamb. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb par excellence. He is God's Lamb. That is the lamb especially provided by God for the sins of the world. In fact, Greek scholars tell us the expression could well be, behold the sacrificial lamb of God. This is what John is saying. Listen, Christians here in this room, Calvary Baptist Church, we need to see today in 2017 that our proclamation of Jesus is to be truthful and honest about who He is and why He came. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't exaggerate it. We can't try to soften it. We just got to be, Behold the Lamb of God. There's a hymn of the faith that sums this up so well, and it's been a controversial hymn since it was written. And we're going to sing it when I'm done. There is a fountain 
filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Did you hear it? Lose all their guilty stains. No, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood of blood, lose all their guilty stains. The author, William Cooper, said the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. He was right there as Jesus bled and suffered. And there may I, he said, though vile is he, wash all my sins away. And then he gets personal. He says, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And then he says, Heir, since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And then he sums it all up. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue Lie silent in the grave. Lie silent in the grave. Lie silent in the grave. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, he sang, I'll still say, there is a fountain filled with blood. You know, that song has been controversial since it was written in 1772. They have altered the wording of this song more than any hymn written in what we know as modern hymnody because they've said it's too bloody. It's too graphic. You heard me in my prayer. William Cooper struggled with depression and wrote this in the throes of depression having attempted suicide three times. And he would write that he felt God stopped him. And from that, as he concentrated on the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that he wrote this hymn. And it's what changed his life. We have to show people the truth of Jesus. We have to let them know the theme of a lamb is all through the Bible. We need to know that John the Apostle and John the Baptist want to be sure none of us miss this. In John chapter 19, verse 14, it tells us that Jesus was handed over to be crucified at the sixth hour, which means noon, which was also the time of the day of the preparation of the Passover lamb of Israel. This is where I want you to see the connection. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis 22, you'll read about Abraham when he's told to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And he goes up on Mount Moriah, which by the way, see the connections. Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is today. It is where the tabernacle would be established, where the temple would be built. It's where all these sacrifices would happen. And Abraham takes his son up there and does this. And it says in verse 7 and 8, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both went together. And it wasn't until Isaac was on that altar bound and Abraham had his hand lifted high and he was going to drive down that knife in obedience to his God that God said, Stop, Isaac. And over in the thicket was a lamb trapped and would become the sacrifice. The lamb of God. It was from this in Abraham and Isaac that a sacrificial lamb was foreshadowed for Israel. Then centuries later when they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years and God finally delivers them using the ten plagues of Egypt that the last and final plague would provide freedom through redemption when was given by the death of a sacrificial lamb. And you read about it in Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13. But in verses 12 and 13, it says, Jesus says, or God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And notice this, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. 
He says, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you know that old hymn? I will pass over you when I see the blood. When I see the blood. That's where this is taken from. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so we see it in Abraham and then we see it in Exodus. And from Egypt and this Passover comes the daily sacrifice of lambs, which became a part of Jewish life in Exodus 29. Two lambs a day, one in the morning, one at night, every day, 360 days a year according to a Jewish calendar. Two lambs were sacrificed for the sins of a nation. Can you imagine the blood? Can you imagine the death? Folks, listen. For Israel, they had a graphic image of what it meant to try and atone for sin. Every day, the families, you were to take your wife and your children and go to the temple and they would watch a lamb be sacrificed. Can you imagine what that did to little children? And what they would have asked their parents? And it was meant to be graphic, even a little scary, as mom and dad were supposed to say, this is what our sin has done. But look at what God has done. And then, they would go through this, and how burdensome would it be every day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, how burdensome would it be? How much would this drive them to wish or long for something more, something better? How much would this remind us not that this is not right, that this never could make us right with God? How often would Israel have longed for something or desperately cried out, is there not something or someone better? And the prophet said yes, but it never came. But now here in John 1, 29, John yells out for the first time to human ears, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial Lamb. Jesus is the one who will pay the price, listen to me, once for all. So when people today wonder, who is Jesus? Why did He come? Why do you follow Him? And why should I trust Him? Your answer is quite simply, He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. This is what the world needs to know. This is the world's greatest needs. It's to have our sin taken away, to be reconciled to God. Every man, every woman, every human being. Folks, Romans 3 tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God is justly opposed to us, and it's our fault. <laughs> but God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. The great preacher J.C. Ryle puts it like this, Christ did not come to earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. He came to do that which man could never do for himself, to do that which money and learning can never obtain, to do that which is essential to man's real happiness. He came to take away sin. I turned 45 this week. According to my middle son, I'm halfway to 90. He loves me. I've been a pastor now for almost 20 years. I can honestly say I think I've literally spoken to hundreds of people, maybe even thousands. And for all of the discussions I've had, it doesn't matter where that person is in life, addicted to something, waffling in money and wealth, or wallowing in shame and guilt. They all want to know, am I good? Like, when this comes to an end, am I good? Where, where am I going? Why am I here? I have met so many people, even those that would say they are pagan deniers of God, they still have this ingrained idea of wanting to know, is, is this going to be okay? Have I got this figured out? And it doesn't matter. I have spoken to the poorest of the poor and the wealthiest of the wealthiest, and they all wonder the same thing. Because as C.S. Lewis said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of our hearts that only God can fill. And our answer does not need to be polished. Witnessing 101 is, 
Behold the Lamb of God. But that leads us to our second point very quickly. If we need to tell people who Jesus is, but then we need to know what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done. Because John says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. But then we need, he says, Who takes away the sin of the world. This is what he has done. Paul called Jesus our Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. But all the way back to Isaiah 53, do we learn that the suffering servant would be the Lamb of God with a purpose and a mission? Isaiah the prophet said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his or her own way. And because of that, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter would take up the theme in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now I want you to see the progression. Kent Hughes does this. In Abraham, you've got a lamb for a person. Right? Isaac was supposed to die, but there was a lamb, so you have a lamb for a person. In Exodus 12, at the Passover, you have a lamb for a family. And then when you get into Exodus 29, you've got a lamb for a nation. But with Jesus Christ, the lamb of of, of behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you have a lamb for the world once for all. That's what you get. That's what the writer of Hebrews means in Hebrews chapter 7 when he says, For it was indeed, indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Why? He has no need like the O's high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment, folks, death and taxes. Even the world gets it. Death and taxes. The writer says, listen, it's appointed to every man and woman once to die, and after that comes a reckoning. He says, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So, review. Why, who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God. What does He do? He is taking away the sin of the world. You see, God provided the Lamb, prophesied the sacrifice of Jesus. God will provide one day. Then the Passover Lamb applied the blood of the Lamb. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Isaiah 53 personifies the Lamb of God. And in John 1, the Lamb of God is identified. But in Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb of God is magnified. And this is our hope. And I want you to see this, church. This is our message. Christianity is a bloody faith. But it's the only one and only way that when you believe and accept, you actually are eternally forgiven, eternally empowered, eternally redeemed, eternally adopted, eternally reconciled, and eternally in a relationship with God Himself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's who Jesus is and that's what he's done. So let's make this personal. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, let me begin by asking you some other questions. When John says, who takes away the sin of the world, what do you think that means? Because a lot of people read that and say, oh, so you know what? God's a great lover, sends Jesus Jesus forgives us and it doesn't matter what I think or do, I'm kind of I'm in by osmosis. You know, since Jesus is big and powerful and He comes to take away the sin of the world, doesn't matter how I live, I get in by side benefit. Is that what He means? But let me ask another question. You see, it's one thing to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God to be able to explain what it means. 
But here's the real question. Our salvation doesn't depend upon our knowing that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but believing in Jesus as the Lamb of God. So do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? Because if you do, it doesn't matter if it was at the ascension of Christ with 11 disciples who were gazing into heaven or on January the 22nd, of 2017 in St. John's, Newfoundland, if you believe in the Lamb of God, that changes you. It changes you. And if you notice, how you answer the second question will help you answer the first one. You see, this verse is a lot like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And people hang on, but God so loved the world, that means He's going to save everybody. Really? Really? That's not what's being talked about here. You see, the world is in contrast to Jews only. You see, now that Jesus has come, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world means anyone in the whole world who believes can be and will be saved. That's why the magnifying passage of Revelation 5 is so important. Listen to John again. When he sees this vision, he says, Worthy are you, this is saying to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now notice this. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Does that not sound like the world? What this means is that when God died and rose again and ascended to heaven, the promise is He will save for Himself a people from every people group on the world. Now that should get you excited. Because that means our faith has power. It doesn't matter how much you're mocked, how much we're ostracized, how much we're marginalized. It doesn't matter if presidents and prime ministers rise up against us. If you live out the gospel and you show people the Lamb of God, people will respond. So church, live like it. Get excited about it. No one is a bigger fan of us building a building than me. I think about it, I talk about it, I pray about it. In truth, I stress about it. I constantly am thinking about it. But I'm going to tell you something. A building won't save people. Only Jesus will. And we have to be more excited about the gospel than we are about our ministries or buildings or facilities or our positions or our powers. we got to tell people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love this statement. I've never met the sinner who came to God who God didn't want. We are called to believe and trust and put our faith in. We're called to confess and admit and cry out. We're called to rest and then strive and practice, even discipline. All of these are responses to Jesus, never attempts to earn Him. And so finally, how do we respond? Notice the rest of our passage. Because John says something repeatedly. He repeats the humility of saying, remember he's the one that is before me even though he came after me and I give way to him. And he says, I preached, the, I preached baptism but Jesus come and actually gives you something. The difference between John and Jesus here, you see John called people to admit they had a need. Jesus came to meet the need. You see, that's why our testimony should never be about me and you. Because all you and I can do is either tell people we, we kind of understand how they feel or we can let them know about our plan. I can't fix anybody. It always amazes me when people come to my office and say, Steve, fix me. And I want to say, you are hopelessly delusional because I can't fix you. Folks, listen, I can't fix myself. I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. If you knew what went on in this head, you would not let me be your pastor. John tells me I'm a mess. Jesus tells me he came to clean up my mess. He came to make me whole. He came to change me. This is what it is. Ray Ortland Jr. puts it like this. We don't have to be perfect to spread the gospel. Our imperfections are part of the gospel. 
Carl Henry put it like this, a Christianity without a passion to turn the world upside down is not reflective of apostolic Christianity. Oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who forgives us and He gave Himself for us and then He gives us Himself and the Holy Spirit to indwell us and that Holy Spirit will teach us and convict us and keep us and seals us. Remember Acts 1.8? You will receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Later in John 3, 8, Jesus is going to say He came to destroy the works of Satan. In John 8, Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. But listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, that's why the little kid's song that we sang in Sunday school, He's still working on me. Right? He is. John could only tell me I'm a wreck, but Jesus tells me I am perfect in Him. And He's making me His. One of the other old hymns of the faith, Rock of Ages, says, Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. O men and women of Calvary Baptist Church, respond to this. Christians, live this. Church, proclaim this. This is our response over and over again. And if... If Jesus is the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world, then that means something, right? Yes? All right. It means that Jesus and only Jesus is the Savior. And get this, everybody needs Jesus and only Jesus as Savior. It's not, He is not part of a buffet of religion and philosophies. You see, every way of life you want to live will get you to God. But only one way gets you to God as Father. Every other way is as judge. And it is only through Jesus Christ. You see, there's nothing else. You can't do it. Your family can't. Your church can't. You can't earn it or buy it or win it or even deserve it. But wait, there's more. You can't not be able to get it either. (laughs) Jesus died for you. If you will believe in Him. Not me. Don't believe in me. Folks, I'm going to fail you before I get to the end of this room. But Christ will never fail you. Don't believe in Calvary Baptist Church. We are a collection of misfits and sinners. We are the true motley crew, not the rock band from the 80s. Don't believe in a denomination. Don't trust in your good works. Don't believe in your bank account. Believe in Jesus and only Jesus. Trust Him. Give Him your life. Be honest with yourself. And what's more, trust Jesus with what He says about you. Romans 5.8 But God gave us His love even though we were still sinners. He still died for us. Doesn't this whole passage beg the question, how can you not but respond to Jesus? So, I ask you this morning, have you trusted Jesus Christ today? If not, why not? Why are you holding out? Why are you not trusting? What is holding you back? J.M. Boyce, that Presbyterian pastor, challenges us in the how and why of our witnessing. He says, we will never be able to focus on the needs of others if our own needs dominate us. For one thing, there is a sense in which our own needs are already met. Whether we recognize it or not, for Paul wrote to the Philippians, and my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 Our needs are met in Christ. We have little to testify of if we do not see that clearly. Besides, we cannot really show love to the other person, which is the essence of witnessing, if we're not placing his or her needs before our own. And if you're clinging to everything about your needs, it means you don't get an understanding. Your needs have been met. Jesus, the Lamb of God, calls us to believe in Him and trust Him. Yes. And all of you would say, I agree with that. But Jesus, as John tells us, says this is the Son of God. So Christians, if He's the Lamb of God and He's the Son of God, not only is He worthy of us proclaiming, is He not worthy of our worship?
This means we serve Him from love. We sacrifice for Him from overwhelming thanks and hope. We act like Him from a deep understanding of who we are now. And But watch, we then also proclaim Him. We point to Jesus as the Lamb of God personally. We can tell folks, Jesus forgave me. Oh, you didn't know? Go to work tomorrow and say, do you know, I, I'm forgiven by Jesus. And when they give you that weird look like a dog at a high-pitched sound, go and say, you didn't know I was a sinner? I'm the worst one. Saved by grace. Oh, you didn't realize how bad I am? Let me tell you. You got no idea. In the dictionary, bad has my face next to it. And I'm forgiven. Jesus, the Lamb of God, forgave me and freed me and empowered me, is working on me and in me, will never leave me nor forsake me. I know, isn't it amazing? It doesn't matter whether it's pride, sexual sin, marriage fighting or failure, lousy parenting, lazy student, anger, bad with money, selfish, depressed, lonely, looking out only for yourself. Jesus paid it all. (laughs) All to Him we owe. So Christians, proclaim Him. That's what Witnessing 101 is. Give them Jesus. And by the way, this is not obvious to the world. This doesn't stick out. It doesn't just magically appear that Jesus is the need everyone has. Go have conversations this week. Listen to people as they search for happiness and safety, as they try to find meaning or their place in this world. Why is George Street full multiple nights of the week? Why are drugs consumed so much in this city? Why is TV watched and movies attended? Why do folks work so hard or party so hard? Why do we go into mountains of debt for stuff or vacations? Why do we try so hard to do everything for our kids and to our kids? Because people not only need the Lord, but so many don't know they need the Lord. And we got to tell them. Tell them about the fountain filled with blood. Tell them about what Jesus has done for you. Be the voice. Be a witness. Pointing them to Jesus. And then, like the shampoo bottle, repeat. 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 That's our calling and our mission and our purpose. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, help me As Satan whispers in my ear, Steve, you were too wound up. When the truth is, how could I ever be so wound up as to really proclaim that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away my sin and it will take away the sin of every man and woman in this room if they will but believe. Father God, where I have failed, may you succeed. May your word not return void. May we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, this Bible, as our authority. And the reality is that we are sinners in need of a Savior who bled and died for us so that we can be forgiven and saved and restored. And don't let anybody leave here today without knowing it. Help us all to know that there is a fountain filled with blood. But we can go there and be washed from all our filthy stains. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.